Hello, and welcome to One-on-One with Robert Doerr. I'm your host, Robert Doerr, and thanks for tuning in today. As president of the American Enterprise Institute, I have the unique privilege of working with America's greatest policy experts. These scholars focus on policy issues in the fields of education, economics, energy, foreign and defense, and so much more. Subscribe to this podcast for exclusive access to in-depth discussions on the most pressing policy issues. Together with my guests, we'll challenge political preconceptions, explore innovative ideas, and create, I hope, a freer and safer world. Now, joining me today is Yuval Levin, the head of the Social, Culture, and Constitutional Studies program here at the American Enterprise Institute. Yuval is clearly one of the most respected public intellectuals in America today. He writes all the time, several books, got a new book coming out soon. Um, It's an honor to be in an institution that has Yuval as part of it and as a leader of it. And so I'm really pleased to have Yuval with us today. Um, And Yuval, I wanted to start out by referencing some things you've been writing recently about um, America's lost unity or lost cohesion compared to a previous time, say the 50s and 60s, um, or maybe I'm not interpreting this right. And the question is, what are you talking about there and how could we get it back? Well, thank you very much, Robert. First of all, it's just it's a, a, a great pleasure and honor to be on. Um, yeah, this theme is actually very central to a lot of my work over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, one of the ways to understand the kind of uh, social crisis that our society has been living through and the sense that our politics has been gripped by, that something is breaking down, I think it's key to understanding what that is, is to think about cohesion, to, to think about a sense of unity and togetherness that is essential to any functional society, uh, to, to helping people feel like they are part of some larger whole, um, and that it does feel like we've been losing in American life. Uh, now, one sense in which that's true is that we've seen a diminishment of various kinds of cohesion since the middle of the 20th century. And I think it is important to see that that point in the middle of the 20th century was an unusual high point for social cohesion in American life. In the wake of World War II and the Depression, so really decades of mobilization, Americans really were unified to an unusual degree. And when you look at all kinds of social measures in that period, it's really striking how Americans felt like they were part of something larger than themselves. And so not only basic measures like uh, like church attendance or answers to public opinion surveys about confidence in institutions and leaders, all these were at extraordinary high points in that moment um, and began to dip and dive by the middle of the 1960s. Um, it is important to see that the high point was unusually high, but the decline, the dive from that high, has really defined the American experience now for decades. And a lot of what people feel has gone wrong in our country is a sense that that togetherness, that unity is breaking down. That sense is true to some extent. I think we overstated by now. But it has a lot to do with the loss of confidence in our country, in its elites and leaders, in its institutions, and in some ways in one another. So one way I hear this get expressed is uh, former Senator Sass, of, of, um, who's now down in Florida at the university, uh, often like to say there was a time when all of America watched the same TV show 
and yeah. we were all united in watching the honeymooners or right. something like that. I mean, that really highlights what I'm saying, which is, of course, there was such a time, but you know, for most of American history, there wasn't any television, yeah. um, and that time didn't really define the entire American story. But we understand ourselves as Americans, even those of us who are too young to have really lived in that time. We understand ourselves through the lens of that period to an extraordinary degree. The earliest, the, 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 the first baby boomers, the ones born in the years right after the war, have really shaped our cultural self-understanding in an extraordinary way. And I think a lot of Americans younger than them now take the lives of the boomers to have been the norm and therefore see ourselves in contrast with, with that period. The time when Americans all watched the same TV show was a pretty, you know, was a, was a, was a fairly brief period of time. Yeah. And two things could erode that cohesion, I mean, it seems to me. One is if the cohesion was centered around a belief in the goodness of our country or the, a belief in America, what could erode it is, is evidence or constantly being told the, the, mis- the shortcomings of America or, or seeing the shortcomings of America in Vietnam or in the... Mm-hmm. Wars in Iraq or Watergate, any of those things. That could do it. Yes. Another what thing that could do it is just a much greater um, cultural uh, and religious and ethnic diversity. Between those two, where do you come down? Which is, a, which is t- breaking us apart more? The fact that we are, tr- we are I think, more diverse yes. ethnically and, and racially or uh, a loss of faith in America because we've been told that we're not as great as we thought we were. Well, I, I might actually offer you a third option. I think about this a little differently. Uh, and I wrote a book about this called The Fractured Republic. It was published in 2016. I, I think a lot of the breakdown of cohesion was intentional. That is, the, the culture of mid-century America felt itself constrained by the intensity of the mainstream culture of that time. If you look at the culture of the 50s, you find complaints about conformity all over the place. Well, the Left graduate. and right. I mean, everywhere yeah, you look. the graduate, yeah. you know, yeah. James Dean movies, but also William F. Buckley's, you know, opening editorial to National Review. He's actually saying the same thing that the, that the early hippies were saying. He's saying everything's too big, everybody's telling everybody what to do, and we need to go our own way. That kind of, of libertarianism, that desire for liberation, it's, it's not libertarianism, that desire for liberation from conformity was the most powerful social force by the end of the 1950s in American culture. And people wanted to be freed from the extraordinary constriction of that time. Some people wanted that in economic terms. American life was very, very regulated. You know, we we complain now, we at AI, rightly, complain now about regulation. But, you know, prices were controlled to a minute degree from Washington at the end of the 1950s. Or the tax rate. And the tax Uh, rate was outrageously high, yeah. yeah. It was a much more regulated economy. We also had, informally, a much more regulated culture. And both cultural liberalization and economic liberalization really start to take off in the beginning of the 1960s. At first, that happened without breaking down the cohesion of the country. And that's really the time that all the boomers miss. That those, those years in the early 60s, where we had the best of the cohesion, people really were unified and felt like they were part of a team, but also liberalizing. The, the civil rights movement and the liberalization of the economy, you had both at the same time, and it just felt like this is the greatest country in the world. And, of course, it is, and it, it was and remains. But we have paid a price for liberalization in diminished uh, unity and cohesion. And so 
we you talk about immigration. I, I actually think the rise in immigration and cultural diversity, which has largely been to the good, I should I should put my cards on the table on that front. I think that was worth doing. But that actually was also a function of a desire to break up a kind of cultural conformity. The, the, the immigration bill that was enacted in 1965 was part of the civil rights movement. It was a response to the same kinds of forces that had created the kind of constrictions we lived with. But but you all now you're now you're making the argument that it's it's good that we're not uh, 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 united. That, that that this is a this is a this is progress. It's not good that we're not united, but I do think that it's good that we are not as constricted a society as we were in 1955. Yes, the, I, I'd put it this way: social change is always good and bad at the same time. Okay. There's always the bad is always a price paid for the good and vice versa. And I think that we should see the good that's been achieved since that moment of the 1950s. American life now is better, not worse than it was in in 1950. But we have also paid a price. And some of the prices looked like family breakdown, which is very bad. It's the worst thing now happening in our society. Some of it has just looked like polarization and division so where do you come down on the on the uh, you know we have some friends on the in the conservative world that are are pretty fed up with the with the with the price of freedom well and where are you on, on that I think we need to address the problems that have been created by the breakdown of American social cohesion but I don't think you address those problems by reversing their causes. And I think in general, by the way, for those of us who work in the think tank world and in public policy, it's really important to distinguish the question, why did this happen, from the question, what can we do about this? Those are not the same question. And prescription is not diagnosis in reverse. Any doctor will tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to address the problems we have doesn't mean undoing all the social change of the last half century and more. Or the expanded freedoms or the greater exactly. immigration or all of those things. We should that be able to us... see the good and the bad and yeah. deal with the bad. And I do think we need to think about public policy prescriptions now that could help us be a more unified society. That's a lot of what my work is about. I don't think that means going in reverse. I think that means building from where we are so that we can keep some of what's best about where we are, but also address the problems. So a long time ago, I was one of those, you know, smarty pants that wanted to get an American studies certificate along with my degree in whatever department I was in. I was in the history department. Uh And I can remember being part of sort of the end of of, uh, instruction seminar where you had to sort of bring it all together. And there were so many voices uh, uh, there in the university that I was at who were saying uh, that there's nothing that unites Americans. Um, we're not united by race. We're not united by religion. We're not united by ideology. Um, we're not united geography. We come from all different backgrounds. And, and, and it's just it's, it's impossible. And I, now I'm patting myself on the back here a little bit because I remember standing up and saying, well, there's one thing. The Constitution. There you go. And am I right about that? Or? <laughs> yes. Well, I think there's more than one thing, but yes, absolutely. I, I, I would say this. I, I think a lot of Americans who have traveled abroad can relate to the experience of spotting another American you know, across, the, across a big crowded room and thinking, that guy is like me. <laughs> and the idea that there's nothing that unites Americans is preposterous. We have, in fact, a very... Uh, self-conscious and cohesive culture in our country. There's a lot that unites Americans. I do think that some of it is a, is historical memory, is living together as a people for a long time. Some of it is culture. Some of it is language. But it's certainly true that for our country more than most, uh, 
Some of what unites us is a set of ideas about how to live and what kind of country we are that's really distinct. I think first of the Declaration of Independence, I think Americans really do agree that we're all created equal. Even when we argue at our most vehement and intense, the arguments are about what it means that we are all created equal and how to live that out. Very few people in our country would deny that we're all created. Some would, and I would say that they're un-American, but very few on either side or any side of our politics. To agree about that is actually pretty extraordinary. That's a controversial view that we're all created equal. Most human beings in most of human history would not have said such a thing, but it's true, and it's what holds us together. And I also think the Constitution is really crucial to creating a kind of political culture that shapes all of us. You know, I, I, I hear my, my kids playing outside with friends, and they're having an argument, and somebody says, well, I've got the right to say what I want. And they're right, but that's not something everybody thinks. We think that because we live in a particular kind of society shaped by a particular kind of politics, and I think absolutely that contributes a lot to what holds us together. Now, I don't want to get you going in sort of apple pie, mom, and, you know, America. But but, <laughs> but is another thing, or is this totally lost? Is We lost Toby Keith, you know, the great yeah. songwriter, country and western singer who did the ballads after 9-11. And my children grew up listening to those those songs. And and I, when I, I re-listened to them and I said to myself, boy, this is so out of touch with the current political climate of both the right and the left. I mean, you know, Donald Trump does not run for president the way George W. Bush did by putting his hand on the Bible and pledging allegiance to America. Mm -hmm. I just have to ask this question. Could we be united around a common belief that we are a successful country, a good country, or are, 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 are you of the group that thinks we're lost? I don't think we're lost. Um, I think we're in a very downbeat kind of moment uh, where everybody's very hard on the country. Um, I think some of that, some of that experience of the post nine eleven period was a result of nine eleven, and I think if something like that happened, we probably would find ourselves in a, in another moment of unity. It's not like the nineteen nineties were a great, uh, you know, the the height of American patriotism either. I think there's an openness to that sort of spirit among more Americans than we would imagine. Um, we don't hear enough from that side of our country, but. Um, you know, it, it it's we certainly do live in a moment where there's a lot of despondency and despair in our political culture, both on the left and on the right. The right is sometimes just as hard, if not more so, on America than the left, and I think that's a particular problem for our kind of country. The right should really stand up for who we are um, more than than we now do. But I I certainly don't think we're lost. I think Americans are still very open to the notion that this country has a lot to offer them and the world, and that the right kind of leadership would uh, would bring that out better. Okay, second issue after cohesion and unity. Uh, I want to talk about, um, you know, you were one of the, I don't know if anyone knows what they are anymore, the reformacons. This was pre-President Trump. I don't um, know if I ever knew what they were. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I, I never really could quite straighten my mind either. But I think that the gist of it was, was that there were the sort of Reagan Republicans or, or or people in the in that period who had a certain set of solutions, tax cuts, less regulation, yeah. strong work requirements and welfare policy and, uh, you know, an aggressive America in the world or strong national defense. And no one really argues, even among conservatives, that at that point, those kinds of solutions were needed. And then I think, but this group that you are identified with, or whether purposely or unpurposely, yeah. Uh, seem to say, 
well, we're, we're playing the same old tune over and over again, and the fact is we got new problems with new solutions. Yeah. So please explain that to me. <laughs> well, I, I'd put it in context this way. I, I think that since the end of the Cold War, which is now a long time ago, 30 years ago, the right has been trying to figure out what it is that we're offering the country. It was clearer during the Cold War um, because the peculiar coalition of the right, which combines people who love markets with people who love family and tradition with people who think America needs to be assertive, um, all of those things were necessary answers to communism, and they held together in that way. I think they hold together in a deeper way, but it's been harder to see that and show that since the end of the Cold War. And we've seen several waves of the right in America trying to articulate a post-Cold War identity. They've all, in one form or another, involved offering resistance to the supposed libertarianism of the Cold War right. Um, each of these waves has presented itself as countering libertarianism and advancing some kind of social conservatism. So the first wave was really George W. Bush, who it's a little hard to remember now, but he ran as an anti-libertarian. You know, we won't balance the budget on the backs of the poor and all that. Um, and wanted to offer himself as a new, um, humble kind of conservatism uh, full of solutions to the country's social problems. 9-11 changed his priorities some, um, and so I think th that that vision became less coherent, but it was what he tried to offer. Um, in the Obama years, a group of us... Um, I would say younger conservatives were less younger now than then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, tried to organize another movement of that sort that, again, presented itself as resisting somewhat the economic libertarianism of the Reagan right. Um, okay, stop there for just a second. Yep. So was that a is that a reaction to excessive free trade that could harm working class communities around the country? Is that an example of it? Yes, I I mean for me it was that that was not the universal view among us, and we weren't that big a group. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but that's one. I mean, yes, Reagan that's one. like free trade. Free trade is good in in overall net positive. We all agree with that. But some people get left behind, and we seem to be I, ignoring. I put it this that. way: I I think that the 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 answer that conservatives offered to the country's economic and to some extent social problems in the at the end of the 70s and into the early 80s was growth, economic growth. Yeah. That was going to solve the problems we had, whatever they were. You got a problem, I got growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, Given that we weren't growing, it was kind well, of- Well, it, it, it was true, as you were saying. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. right for, yeah. for the 1970s and 80s. It's still important, by the way. I'd like to have more economic growth. Yeah. Th that really does um, help address all kinds of complicated economic problems. Um, but- Step two of the argument was the way to get growth is to lower tax rates um, on individuals and businesses, and that you know this rising tide would lift all boats, as as Jack Kemp put it and Ronald Reagan put it. President um, Kennedy put it that way too. Well, that's right; they got it from him. Yeah. Um, a lot of Jack Kemp's rhetoric actually came <laughs> from John Kennedy. Um, and th the 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 core argument was that this was the problem to be solved. Now it succeeded. I think the first thing to say about it is that it worked. The second thing to say seven, about it is that- Seven, what, what did Bartley call it? Seven, seven glories? Seven fat years. Seven yeah, fat years. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but once you had lowered tax rates from uh, 80% to 35%, to then say, well, if we lower it to 33%, <laughs> yeah, we'll have yeah. the same- yeah. I, don't th I don't think that's quite right. But more, th more than that, w w we found Republicans in, say, 2010 
right, so 30 years after Ronald Reagan, saying that the answer was to look to Reagan and that's what worked and that's what we should do. It was as if Ronald Reagan had stepped on the scene in 1980 and said, the solution is Eisenhower Republicanism. Yeah, I got it. Um, That would not have worked and it was not going to work in 2010. What we tried to do, I would say, if I can say we about this little group of, uh, of, of friends of mine who were the reform conservatives, most of whom are here at AI now, by the way, um, and some of who were then. Broadly speaking, what we tried to do was to allow social conservatism to set the goals, to set the ends, and economic conservatism to set the means. So we wanted market mechanisms to advance the goals of conservative family policy and social policy to focus on work, to focus on family, to focus on choice as ways of allowing people to be more empowered and to address the kinds of challenges they were facing. Um, I think the right is still searching for a post-Cold War identity. I think Trumpism was a third wave of that and that there's going to need to be a fourth one too. But I'm hearing in your answer in, in, in uh, uh, some identification, and I identify with it too, whether it matters or not, too, that... that that to the same that the entire um, merit of our country or our people is not defined by our gross national product. Yes. That that it's more complicated than that. It's the extent to which we have faith in God. It's the extent that we love our children. That we form solid families. That we're good in the community. And and there was an excessive uh, uh, emphasis on markets only. I think that's right. I, I for me. You know, this starts in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, even Jesus liked that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's very important, and it has to be read all the way through. It doesn't mean we don't need bread. We need bread. We can't live without it, but that's not the point. And I think we became too focused on economic growth as an end-all when economic growth is a means to a flourishing life. But is there a way in politics, through government to engender these values that sometimes sound a little religious. Sure. You, I, just, you just made them well, sound I, religious. Well, for me, they are religious, <laughs> but I, I don't think that what we need from government is to engender these values. I think that we want a public life that is supportive of an idea of human thriving and successful life that is rooted in these kinds of values. People will draw them from different places and will find them in different ways, but government has to be supportive of those kinds of aspirations. And... I think the social policy that came out of the great society was actively hostile to these aspirations and damaging to them in ways that have needed to change and some of which still need to change. Okay, so I, I'm really glad you put it that way because that means that if you were the sort of person that fought, thought that the better formation of kids happened in households where at least one of the parents could spend a lot of time not working and at home with the right. child on a full-time basis. If you thought that was true, and for the young listeners out there who may be forming families, including my children, I believe that's true. That's how Sarah and I organized our family. We, were, we had some sacrifices, and we also had some luck that allowed us to afford it. But let's just, just say that was our position, right. that, that, it's, that, fam, that kids need parents, in the, not just married and in the household, but actually there at, at the end of the school day and in a way that, that the traditional family in the 50s and 60s might have been. If you believe that, what policies would you do? do? Do you think we should do policies to make that easier for families to achieve? Well, yeah, I think we should make it easier for families who want that to be able to achieve it. Um, and I do think it matters that what we're making easy is for families to have the kinds of lives they want. 
um, what kind of lives we ought to want is a question that we answer by reference to all kinds of other institutions than politics. Politics maybe has some role to play in defining that, but it's not a central role. And I, I think it is very important that our, our, our public policy be supportive of the sorts of institutions where we do define that. So that means respecting the freedom of religious institutions and of cultural and civic institutions, supporting them, allowing them to work, but recognizing that politics can't replace those and shouldn't try to, and that most of where we find our meaning in life and our belonging and our path to flourishing is not in politics. American politics is best when it understands the, the bounds, the limits of its own reach. Okay, last issue. Um, thank you. Uh, and then we'll, and this is a tough one. This is this is the, the part of the conversation that the, I'm going to sound obnoxious, um, and I apologize for that. But that's you know got to make it exciting or interesting. Uh, not an AI scholar, but a scholar at another think tank published something uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the headline was "Incompetent Elites Make Trump Look Appealing," um, and uh, it was John Cochran at the Hoover Institute, and he he began by saying the point of it, it was that that um, uh, a lot of what's happening in politics today, a lot of the populism, a lot of the support for President Trump is a reaction toward bad leadership by elites. And uh, his first example is the George W. Bush administration, which you are an alumni of. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering as sort of <laughs> among that club. Right. Um, how are you? How are you dealing with this constantly being the, the 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 punchline of Trump's criticism? Well, I, I guess I'd say I'm, I'm not sure that there's a that there's a process of dealing with it in that club exactly. <laughs> um, I suspect a lot of people in that club are not amused. Um, but look, I think there's no question that a fair amount of the attitude that now pervades our politics has to do with a loss of trust in American elites. Um, I, I think that um, it's very easy to exaggerate the failures of American leaders and elites because we, th their successes very often tend to be invisible. Uh, their problems averted. There are problems addressed. There are things we don't have to deal with. There really were no further terrorist attacks after 9-11, for example. That took a lot of work by a lot of people in the Bush administration. There you go. There you go. And, the, the, you know, it's a thing that didn't happen. So is it a success or not? I don't know. I'm not sure if it would have happened. Um, it was a success. I think it was. I can remember being a New Yorker. We were told by the New York Times every day, get used to this. This is going to happen every, every six months. We can't control this. Can't be stopped. Yeah. And yet it was stopped. And look, I, I, I'm one of those rare people, maybe I'm the only one, who thinks that even the, the federal response to Katrina was ultimately a success of, of mass mobilization and government action. I agree with Moving you Moving a million people out of was, an urban center yeah, in six I, days. I completely agree with you. Um, and averting tremendous loss of life. But it was messy, and so was the response to 9-11. And there were certainly mistakes made in both cases. Uh, you can point to the financial crisis. You can point to all manner of other things that in the environment we live in are understood fundamentally as elite failures. I think some of that is holding elites to a standard that human beings can't rise to. But a lot of it is the fault of those elites. And, you know, I would say we, we trust people with authority 
when they combine competence and restraint, when we think they can do what they claim, but also that they won't do what they shouldn't do. And I think American elites in the last 20 years have failed on both fronts very often. Um, The greatest failures have actually been on the restraint side, the sense that people in power are just using their positions for their own benefit rather than uh, or to advance their own interests and, and beliefs rather than doing their jobs. That happens everywhere all the time, and it's hard to blame people for not trusting elites. And there was certainly enough of that in the Bush administration, too. I don't think that that points to uh, to Donald Trump, who doesn't strike me as an answer to elite failure, but it certainly helps explain the public's attitude towards elites in the 21st century. Okay, so one, and then another uh, more recent, and one we went through together, and I just was, I've always wanted to some, spend some time with you on this and have AEI scholars spend some time on this because it is, you know, we went through it together. Looking back, how do you think elites performed during the COVID crisis? Well, that's an example of where I think the problem is much more often a, a failure of restraint than a failure of competence. Um, I think we did find that a lot of elites in public health and in other important arenas um, were playing politics rather than simply doing their jobs. And the, the, the combination of the Floyd George moment and COVID created a situation where a lot you of- mean George Floyd. I'm sorry, uh, George right. Floyd. Um, created a situation where a lot of people we were looking to um, to, to function as authoritative experts really were instead playing politics, and they made themselves impossible to trust. I think there were a lot of failures on that front. I will say, I think, for example, that um, Operation Warp Speed was probably the most successful act of American government in my lifetime. Um, and it, 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 it's no small thing. It's something that really has to be appreciated across two administrations of two different parties uh, to to, uh, to to enable the development of a vaccine to a new virus. It had never happened before in less than five or eight years. It happened here in less than one year um, and was tremendously successful. There's a lot of uh, conspiracism around it and all kinds of, uh, of, of complaints about how it was rolled out. Some of them are valid, some of them are not. It's very hard to govern in a crisis and I will say, maybe this is one, maybe this is a, 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 a sort of way to, 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 to cap the discussion of elites here. The thing to, what for me has really been a, a key lesson of working in Washington for 25 years now, and especially of working in government. Um, I worked for a Speaker of the House, I worked for a President of the United States. I, I think it's really important to understand that all the way up and down, our government is full of human beings. Uh, having worked in government, I don't believe any conspiracies because conspiracies suggest that people have some long-term plan and three steps ahead and you're just a pawn. Let me tell you, they don't have a plan. (laughs) They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They're trying to survive what happened this afternoon. Now, at one level, that's terrifying, and it's terrifying for them. But at another level, it should be reassuring because they are ultimately human beings dealing with very complicated problems. That means you can't expect them to be perfect, but you should expect them to be responsible. And our elites fail when they fail to be responsible. That certainly has happened, but I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that it's the only thing that ever happens. I do think that um, 
the elites uh, not having restraint and and making mistakes and not having the humility to recognize them um, has been damaging to us. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, we are elites and we are experts, the collection of scholars, and and there's a sort of a lack of trust in, in anything that comes out of that right now because, and, and I'll even say about the vaccines, I completely agree with you about the vaccines, but all of the other stuff is even undermined in the minds of the American people, Absolutely. The, that amazing achievement. And it's exactly a lack of restraint. You know, when people complain about Tony Fauci, they're not saying he doesn't know anything about public health. They're saying he's not restrained. He's telling me things he knows aren't true or he's trying to manipulate me in one way or another. And some of that was just true. Yeah. And it doesn't mean he's not an expert in public health, but to be an authoritative expert, you really do need to be restrained as well as competent. Yeah. Well, I think we've got some work to do in... in, in or in the broader world of public policy experts in in trying to to describe what happened and lay the groundwork for not letting it happen again because yeah. um it was a when i think about it now in my in my i'm older than you but in in my 35 years of being in in around public policy that experience of 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 full-fledged shutdowns of the entire economy and the enormous expansion spending and the fear and and the health consequences was very unusual. Yes. Uh, and um, I don't want it to happen again that way. Amen um, to that. All right. With that, we're going to call it a day. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Yuval, for thank being you. here. And uh, we'll see you next time on uh, One on One with Robert Doerr.